0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Willingham. He's professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, and today we're going to talk about his book, Why Don't Students Like School? A Cognitive Scientist Answers Questions About How the Mind Works and What It Means for the Classroom. So, Dr. Willingham, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks so much, Ricardo. Happy to be here. So could you tell us, I mean, give us perhaps a brief summary of what you explore in the book? I mean, how would you answer briefly the question you put in the title, why
1: don't students like school? So those are actually two different questions because the title was a little bit of a um, decision from the point of view of publishing rather than an effort to describe exactly what the contents of the book are. Mm Um, let me start with what the book is about the, the I'm a cognitive psychologist by training so I study attention and memory and so forth um, and I was a typical sort of researcher of human memory in that vein for about the first 10 years of my career and I was had nothing no interest in education at all um, a, a, except, trying to teach my own class as well because I was and still am affiliated with the university. Um, But I got interested in education about 10 years after uh, I finished my PhD uh, because I realized there were a lot of findings from cognitive psychology that I felt didn't have the attention and prominence that they really deserved in education. Um, It's not that you would never find these findings in educational psychology courses, but they were sort of crowded in with a lot of other things. And just in talking with teachers, I found a lot of teachers um, didn't know these these findings. Uh, So the book was really an effort to highlight a small number of the most important findings um, that I think have a classroom applicability Uh, and that also constitute things that teachers might not already be familiar with. Uh, But most important, they're principles that I, uh, the way I put it in the first edition of the book, was like things that I, I won't have to say in five years' time, oh my goodness, it turns out that was wrong. We really thought that was right at the time I wrote the book, but now we found out some of the data were no good or whatever. I wanted them to be uh, principles that had been replicated many, many times um, across different groups of kids with different subject matter and so on, so that they would be really reliable. Mm-hmm. Now the title of the book, Why Don't Students Like School, is a reflection of the fact that the way I frame the book is each chapter sort of poses a question and then the that I thought would be of interest to teachers. Uh, and then the answer to the question is sort of that one of those principles that uh, that I was talking about. So the very first chapter is titled "Why don't children? Why don't students like school?" Um, and so that's sort of supposed to be in contrast. A lot of times people give me a hard time and say some kids do like school, and of course that's true. Um, but it, you know, when we often think like children are natural learners. It's a natural thing to be curious, and um, that's part of being human. Uh, and so if that were true, it seemed like everybody should love school and everyone should want to be at school all the time. And so the uh, chapter starts uh, posing that question. So the title of the book, sorry, this is a long answer to a really brief question. The title of the book is that is uh, taken from the, the very first chapter, and I think my publisher thought, oh, that's a really fun you know fun title, let's make that the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's. Uh, I, sometimes people get irritated with me and they say, that's not really what the book is about. And it's true, the book is about cognitive psychology and education.
0: Right. And why do you say in the early part of the book that uh, people
1: don't like thinking, or I mean, the yeah, brain right. is
0: not designed yeah. for thinking?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the heart of the answer to the question, why don't students like school more than they do? Or why don't all children like school a whole lot? Uh, the argument is the brain is really not designed for thinking. Uh, school, of course, uh, the point of school is to think. Um, and the brain's not really designed to do that. Thinking is really your last choice, your last resort. Um, thinking is what you do when you don't have an answer to a question already in memory. So most of the time, we are confronted with situations that could. You know, about which you could think. Uh, so the ex- one example I use in the uh, book is when you go to a supermarket, there are lots of choices for bread. And every time you go to the supermarket, you could really think about that choice and you could get out your phone and look up information about the company and whether or not it has green policies You know, for each of the uh, bakers. And you could look at the nutrition content and the price and weigh all these factors uh, why don't you do that? Part of the reason, of course, is that you think there's not going to be very much payoff. Another part of the reason is it would be very effortful. Uh, and that's generally true of thinking. Thinking is effortful. It takes a long time in addition to being effortful, and you're uncertain as to whether or not you're going to get a good outcome. So when you're confronted with a problem like, I wanna buy bread, there are 50 types of bread at this supermarket, which one should I buy? You're very likely to just uh, use memory rather than using your thinking processes. And using memory means, I bought this type of bread before, I remember being satisfied with it, uh, and so I'm gonna buy it again. Uh, And that's generally what we do, and that's, that's why I say, Uh, the mind is not designed for thinking it's really designed for if we think over evolutionary time it's really designed to save you from having to think because thinking uh, we always compare our thinking abilities to other animals and we're very good at certain types of thinking compared to other animals Uh, but memory is much much more effective it's much faster it's much more reliable so if you can use memory you probably should But there are certainly
0: situations and things where people like to think, right? I mean, things they like to think about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, curiosity is a real human impulse. Um, And some of my favorite experiments on curiosity show that... Uh, if you give people choices, with you know, all you need to do is say there are these little buttons that are going to come up on the screen, and you push a button, and you will probably get a little bit of money. Sometimes you won't get any. Sometimes it'll be larger, it'll be smaller, and there are a number of different buttons. And people, and, you know, the goal here is you're, you're actually going to leave the experiment with whatever money you earn by pushing these buttons. So you're motivated to try and figure out which are the good buttons, and people experiment and explore. And they figure out which are the good ones, but they will consistently sample the other some of the other buttons just to see whether things have changed. Uh, and this is, I think, a beautiful example of what curiosity is all about. Curiosity is about gaining new information, uh, and so this is where the the uh, curiosity, the impulse for curiosity, comes from. Is you're trying to learn more about your environment. And in that sense, curiosity seems very sensible. And you'll even you know, do, um, sacrifice a, a known gain uh, to uh, sample the environment and, and try to learn a little bit more about it. So we're, And this, I think, accords very well with, when we think about it, not just in terms of figuring out payoffs, but about learning new information. Uh, this is an example I used in in an article I wrote about curiosity. Uh, Suppose I offered to you, um, would you like to know what the most common type of star in our galaxy is? Uh, And think about the extremes of information based on what you already know. So on, on the one hand, it could be you already know what the most common type of star is and so there would be no information and in that case there's not going to be any curiosity either you're like you know you don't need to tell me because our, right the other extreme is you don't know anything about stars you don't know anything about our galaxy so like I, you know if you told me in one sense i would gain information but in another sense i would have nothing to connect that to it would be kind of a meaningless little factoid removed from anything else so I'm not going to feel curious about it either. But if I already know a fair amount about astronomy, but that's one fact I don't know, and when I find out I'm going to be able to make meaningful connections, that's when you're going to feel curious. So curiosity is really primed when there's maximal information to be gained, and maximal information is going to be gained when you already know something about the topic.
0: So, across the globe in education systems, there are people nowadays who claim that what's really important is for students to acquire uh, critical thinking skills and not so much factual knowledge. There are even people that say that factual knowledge is not important at all because the kids or students are just memorizing things. But is that really true? Uh,
1: No, it's really not true. Um, You... Uh, I mean, everybody agrees we don't want kids simply memorizing facts, you know, free of context, where they can't, you know, understand what the how the facts are meaningful relative to other facts. Uh, and in addition, we don't want kids learning information and never thinking about how you would apply that information. Uh, at the same time, I think I agree with you. I think fewer people appreciate that the the sort of opposite is also true. The idea of teaching kids critical thinking skills without having any factual knowledge to uh, use those critical thinking skills, I think is a deeply mistaken understanding of how the mind works. Um, There are some, you can certainly try to think critically and in some cases you'll be somewhat successful uh, in thinking critically, but most of the time you really need knowledge of the domain that you're trying to think about uh, in order to uh, implement critical thinking skills,
0: mm-hmm. are there even domain independent skills uh, some people claim is that a
1: thing i mean in in one sense, sure um, the you get into deep waters pretty quickly here, but i'll I'll try and think of some some relatively simple examples. I mean certainly, when we think about deductive logic, this is one thing that, that people like to point to, is like deductive logic is is always right, right? Conditional uh, probability always applies. Um, and, and that's certainly true. The difficulty is getting people to um, reach a level of proficiency with those abstract skills where they can u- apply those skills fruitfully. Um, so for example, principles of deductive logic, there's, there's pretty good evidence that if you take one course in deductive logic, when you see, for example, an op-ed in a newspaper that has an error in deductive logic, you're not very likely to be able to spot it after a single course. So we're looking at a much longer term uh, uh, project. The other thing, deductive logic in particular, uh, there have been pretty strong arguments in the last five years that even if you could teach everyone to use deductive logic in all, um, all circumstances, it would be less fruitful than you think it would be. Uh, the reason for that is, for one thing, when you think about it, um, deductive logic usually requires that you accept the premises, right? The whole point of deductive logic is that you're able to draw a new conclusion that is true with certainty. Um, if you're certain of the premises. So right there, it's like, oh, well, okay, so you actually need, you know, the knowledge, the background knowledge is really important because you actually have to in, when you take a course in deductive logic, it's fine. It's like, you're supposed to accept the premises. That's part of the, how you learn it. Uh, But if you're gonna apply it, you actually need to know whether or not the premises are accurate. And so background knowledge is gonna be really important in doing that. Um, The other thing is that people have argued, and I think persuasively, Uh, That they're just, it's very seldom that uh, even given good background knowledge, you're ever in a position to, or you're seldom in a position to be absolutely certain that the premises are 100% right. It's going to be more uh, a question of probability. You have more or less confidence that you think the premises are right. Um, And you could expand that argument to say that's really most of human thought is going to be inductive. Most of the time, we're not dealing in uh, um, you know either it's either it's true or it's false. We're dealing in probabilities. We're dealing in some our confidence uh, that a conclusion can be drawn. So all of this again, kind of a long answer, but um, I think the idea that if we teach kids you know critical thinking skills in the abstract. Um, that's, you know, that, that would be a worthy goal. Uh, I think that's, I think it's, there, there are a few reasons it's wrongheaded. I've just given, uh, I think, uh, I've just given a fairly long answer about why I think using the uh, deductive logic as uh, sort of our gold standard for thinking uh, won't work. And that's, that's most often the, the one that's offered, as you mentioned, sort of across domains, that's the one that's most often offered. Uh, But the other thing is, there's a lot of, um, to sort of expand on your question, uh, there's a lot within domains that people would agree is particular to domains. There are specifics of critical thinking within history, within literature, within mathematics, within science. Uh, these disciplines have different goals and they have different toolboxes of thinking skills. Uh, so that's another reason to think um, there are, or, or another way of putting the, the idea that there are some that, uh, thinking skills that you could argue would be effective across domains, but that certainly would not be a complete picture.
0: Mm-hmm. Can knowledge transfer between different domains? Is that something that can happen?
1: I I suppose it depends on what you mean. Um, Can you say more about what you're thinking there?
0: Uh, I I
1: mean, if by
0: acquiring certain skills in a given domain, they can transfer to another
1: domain. Oh, okay. Um, Sometimes, but frequently not. Uh, Again, a lot of this is based on practice. Uh, So um, when we initially learn a new thinking skill. Um, uh, so for example, you know, in, in why students like school I gave to, to make it easy for adults to understand, I usually use like math problems that kids uh, ma- um, learn in elementary school like calculating the area of a rectangle or uh, rate, time, distance problems. Um, a rate times distance problem is a great example of something when you first, when you first learn it, it stays sort of bound, that, that, that thinking strategy stays bound to the types of examples you learned when you initially learned the skill. And I think most people can identify with this, that when you um, uh, hear about, a new, you know, if, if you took physics and uh, your teacher taught you a principle, like um, force equals mass times acceleration, Um, Even if you have a really good definition of each of those terms, you immediately want a concrete example. Like, I don't feel like I understand it. Like, can you tell me what that really means? Um, So there's something about understanding that seems to demand concreteness. And what it's really demanding is relating the new information to something that you already understand. And most of what we already understand is concrete. So when you encounter a new idea, you want to hear it explained in terms that you already are familiar with, and that helps you feel like you're making new connections and can understand it. The problem is then when you, you have that concrete term, the new information is sort of bound to it. So your understanding of rate times distance or your understanding of area calculation is bound to the examples that you were given. Um, and so when you encounter what is essentially the same problem, but with a new, sort of dressed up in a new way, you don't you don't recognize that it's really the same problem. Uh, so if a teacher is trying to help a child understand area by saying, well, look, here's the length and the, the width of this, uh, this tabletop and it's relatively small and look how much paint we would need to paint the top. Not very much, but now here the length and the width is bigger, and look, it expands so much there, we need much more paint, so on and so forth. The idea of area of a rectangle is all tied up in tabletops and paint and so on. And then when the child, you know, in daily life encounters a new idea about a sports field. Uh, that still is about area of a rectangle, she doesn't recognize that this is essentially the same thing. Now, the reason that you and I recognize, would recognize that it's the same thing is because we've seen area of a rectangle in so many different guises that eventually that the need for uh, uh, that the, the tabletop business uh, to help us feel like we understand disappears. Um, so when you ask, sorry, again, long answer to a, a, a very uh, succinct question. When you ask, uh, can domain knowledge transfer to uh, other domains? The answer is it can, but it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and there are real educational implications for this. We need to be uh, wise about what we want to invest our time in. So not we can't practice everything to the point that we're going to get this benefit where the child sees the structure of the problem. So we need to think, what are the uh, you know, really core ideas within history or within literature or whatever it is that we want children to be so familiar with uh, that they're able to do that recognition process? And once we've figured out what those core ideas are, we'll say, okay, how are they going to get sustained practice in recognizing those?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of learning, how important is extended practice, and what does it entail exactly?
1: Yeah, well, as I, as I just described, extended practice is is really essential. If you want to be proficient at anything, you can't really expect to be proficient without without practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just talking with a teacher who was expressing surprise by um he teaches 7th uh, and 8th grade students uh, and he was saying he was very surprised that his his students didn't understand that you know studying is that kind of practice and he said when i taught when i compare it to Singing or playing a musical instrument, or I compare it to athletics, or I compare it to almost anything else that they do. They recognize, like, no, you know, you're, you're not going to be good if you never practice. If you just, you know, even if you have a good musical ear or whatever, you seem to have some natural ability. Um, they understand. It's so of course you have to practice, or or video game, anything. Uh, but somehow they don't have that idea with academic work. They, uh, some of them have the idea that, you know, either you're good at it or you're not, or they kind of hope that, gonna, <laughs> that things aren't going to go well without recognizing they can really uh, take control. So, yeah, I mean, practice is, practice is essential uh, in order for, for mental skills, just like any other type of skill.
0: When it comes to explaining differential outcomes, I mean, uh, outcomes uh, that are different between individuals in terms of learning and uh, academic skills, academic proficiency, uh, 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 academic attainment. Do you think that individual differences like intelligence and IQ specifically play a big role there?
1: I mean, IQ is really a description of academic ability. It's not really, a, people think of it as, excuse me, this sort of essential character, like something that I just sort of have, like having blue eyes or going bald at a young age. Um, but that's really not a very good way to think about IQ. IQ is really something that you get. Um, you know, if, I, IQ is a combination of, Mental skills and knowledge. That's a. That's a. Again, we're back to knowledge. People don't think of knowledge as contributing to IQ, but that's crazy. I mean, the gold standard IQ test in this country is the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale. That's the one that people validate. New new intelligence tests are validated by showing that they predict scores uh, on the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale and the Wexler has an information subtest that is just like how much stuff you know about the world. It's got a vocabulary subtest, right? How many word definitions do you know? So information is absolutely um, part of IQ. Now, there is an aspect of intelligence that's heritable, there's no doubt about that, but exactly the right way to think about that uh, is a little complicated. Um, I love the analogy that Bill Dickens gives, which I think is, um, is probably the best way to think about it, which is uh, there are aspects of intelligence that are heritable, but they are relatively modest. And the main thing they do is they prompt you to seek out environments and those environments are likely to offer opportunities to boost IQ. So Dickens offers this analogy. Uh, There are things that are heritable, strongly heritable, that would make you um, uh, a a candidate to be good at basketball. So uh, uh, the genetic heritability of being tall is high. Right. Um, the genetic heritability, maybe uh, your genes also prompt you to have pretty good hand-eye coordination. Maybe your genes prompt you to um, have relatively quick reflexes and so on. Being tall actually is probably enough to knock you into environments where it's natural to practice basketball. Right, so because you're tall, uh, people say like, oh, you should play basketball. And you're picked first for the team, like when you're still in elementary school. And because you're taller than the other kids, you are a little bit better at basketball, not much, but you're a little bit better than, than your peers. And because people are talking to you about it, you start playing more basketball. And you ask your parents whether you can get lessons or you can get a basketball hoop uh, at home and so forth. So being tall doesn't make you good at basketball. Um, Practice makes you good at basketball, but being tall might knock you into an environment where you end up doing a lot of practice of basketball. So the same thing is uh, plausibly true about intelligence. Um, Maybe uh, genes prompt you to talk a little bit more earlier than your peers, or genes prompt you um, actually to not be very good at basketball. You don't have very good hand-eye coordination, therefore you're not spending time outdoors, you're more likely to spend time indoors reading. Again, these are small effects. Uh, but they end up snowballing. They end up multiplying because your parents see uh, see these differences between you and other kids, and they encourage the things that you're good at, and so forth. Um, so that I think is a a, a useful way to uh, to think about both these both these. Well, there are a few ideas here, and it's probably uh, useful to review them. One, when we talk about intelligence, uh, I think it's a mistake to talk about it as something that just sort of comes uh that that the child just comes with intelligence is something that you get it's you have to acquire knowledge and acquire mental skills intelligence is definitely heritable that's very well established and it's not a tiny effect either um but it's also the case that it's not real direct that if you if you've uh Got parents with a high IQ, you're definitely gonna have kids with a high IQ. It just the relationship, um, that sort of direct causal relationship doesn't seem to be consistent with the data. And the third thing that I'll add to that is when I talk about influences, it's important to to recognize these as influences. So back to basketball and height. Um, I said that height is heritable. It's not that your genes make you tall, you know, full stop. Uh, because other things influence your height as well. Height is also a function of whether or not you have good nutrition, whether or not you have good health care, right? So this mm-hmm. is, and we talk about it uh, usefully as an influence rather than uh, a direct cause.
0: Mm-hmm. So what distinguishes experts from lay people in terms of their cognition in how they process information? Uh,
1: Yeah, a a number of things. Um, Some of the more important is that they have knowledge of the domain that is actually structured differently. So uh, earlier in our conversation, I talked about um, uh, recognizing, oh, this is a rate, time, distance problem. Oh, this is an area of a rectangle problem. Uh, so seeing those functional relationships, looking at a tabletop and seeing area, uh, looking at a potential trip that I'm going to take to Portugal and seeing rate times distance rather than thinking about airports and airplanes and so on, these sort of underlying um, functional relationships among the elements of the description. That's what experts have within a domain. So if you are an expert in automobiles, you have this understanding of all the parts and the engine and the systems and so on. Um, and that's that's one very important aspect that differentiates them from novices. Uh, another thing is that a lot of the... Um, uh, repetitive aspects of the domain are going to be automatized and so they don't they don't need to be thought about or considered they take very little attention and working memory uh, so a sports analogy is useful and um, uh, easy to appreciate here again in basketball uh, a beginner has to think about footwork a beginner has to think about dribbling the ball and uh, uh, um, someone who's an expert that's completely automatized and so because they don't have to think about their footwork they don't have to think about dribbling working memory is available to think about where is everybody else on the court uh, what sort of play is developing what sort of play would i like to try to make happen and so on so those are two of the more important uh,
0: differences Another thing that you tackle in the book is learning styles because there are people that claim that different individuals have, the, have different styles of learning and acquiring yeah. information and they say that, for example, by presenting the same information in different ways, some people, uh, I mean, acquire it is, is easier and others more
1: harder. So, yeah. uh,
0: are there, is there any scientific support for that?
1: Uh, There's not any scientific support for it and this is an idea that's been around a long time. Um, it, It probably goes back to the 1920s. It was very active during the 1950s. Uh, and then uh, no one found any real evidence for it. And there was sort of a resurgence of interest in the 1970s when people thought, oh, maybe this will apply to kids who we have diagnosed with some sort of a learning problem. Maybe if we switch the way that information is encountered, um, we'll find they, they're they able to learn much more effectively. It, it didn't work with uh, that population of kids either. Um, so yeah, there, there isn't any evidence, I mean, I think it's, it's very broadly um, accepted, uh, and I can't remember whether there's data on Portugal in particular, there's, there's data in, in most of Western Europe, uh, it's very highly accepted. It's very highly accepted in Central America, uh, in the United States, in Canada, uh, so pretty much everywhere that um, researchers have looked to see whether the general public and also educators uh accept this idea the acceptance has been very high uh there are a couple of reasons i think that's true um perhaps you know what before i even talk about that let me let me briefly describe um why i'm so confident that that is not true the key um prediction that you would make is that it's, it's sort of just as you said we we have um, a child who has difficulty understanding a concept but we change the way that the concept is presented and then it, it makes more sense. Uh, so what you do is you take 100 uh, um, people and then you first you categorize them based on whatever the learning style is. Sometimes researchers would simply ask them, uh, other times they would have a little paper and pencil test. Um, so, suppose that we're interested in auditory versus visual learners. Uh, there are lots of these theories, by the way. There are like probably at least 30, uh, but let's just stick with auditory versus visual learners. Uh, so, we have 50 auditory and 50 visual learners. Then we're going to give everybody some sort of experience. Um, maybe the visual experience would be seeing a bunch of drawings that make up a story, and the auditory experience would be hearing hearing the story told without the pictures. The key thing is that for half of our people, they're going to get uh, an experience that is consistent with their style. So if they're auditory, they'll hear the story. If they're visual, they'll see the story. And then half of the people, it's gonna be the opposite. Uh, they'll get the, Their learning style will not be honored. And then we have some measure of how well they understood the story or how well they remember the story later, something like that. Um, so that's the experiment. The prediction is very straightforward. If you honor learning style, the outcome is going to be better to get more out of the experience. And that's why, uh, that's what we don't see evidence for. Um, the next question we might ask is if it's not true, why does everybody think that it's true? Uh, and there are a couple of reasons I think that that might be the case. One is that learning styles is often um, mistaken for ability. So it is the case that some people have better auditory memory and some people have better visual memory. Right. So if I have a child in my classroom and I say, like, wow, she's like, you know, she we went on a field trip and she described exactly what it looked like. She has one. She's clearly got a visual learning style. Right. But that's not a learning style. That's ability. Uh, and it may sound like a sort of uh, nitpicky difference, but it's actually really important. So go back to our experiment. Auditory memory would mean you understand, the you, um, you have good memory for the voice. Like what, did they have an accent? Um, was it a man or a woman? Like the, the timbre of the voice, all the qualities of the voice, that's auditory memory. But what we're measuring is not whether or not they remember the exact audition, the exact sound, we're measuring: do they remember the story? Do they remember the meaning of the uh, of of the experience, right? Um, and so that's the difference between uh, skill and, uh, or sorry, ability and style. Style is supposed to be. Uh, the audition, uh, hearing is sort of the vehicle to get to meaning and it's a more effective vehicle. It's not that you're especially good at hearing or especially good at vision. So that's one reason I think a lot of people think the learning styles idea is right. Is It's absolutely the case that people differ in ability and some people have good visual memory and better than others and, and so forth, but that's a different idea than learning styles. The second reason I think so many people believe it is that uh, it's become sort of one of those things everybody knows and you wouldn't even think to question it. I compare it with like the germ theory of disease. How do I know there are germs? Like, have I read the research papers? No, I haven't read the research papers, but like everybody knows that's right, that germs cause disease. It doesn't even occur to me to you know, question it and think. Oh, I should really look up the literature on that. And I think learning styles has gained that status, uh, where you just wouldn't think to question it because everybody knows that it's right. And what about and, multiple
0: intelligences? Earlier, we touched on general intelligence, but are yeah. there multiple intelligences out there?
1: I think there are. I mean, most people would say uh, most people would would say that there are. Um, it's a little bit of a um, uh, question of, uh, I almost said it's a personal choice of description. So most people for their, their, most people would say, yes, there are multiple abilities at least. Whether or not you call them intelligences is different. Um, but if we let's start with abilities and then we'll talk about whether or not you would want to call them intelligences. Uh, So the idea that some people are good with words and other people are good with numbers Mm -hmm. seems kind of obvious to everybody. And then in addition, some people are really seem to uh, uh, like music better and are more effective with it and other people, right? And so we can name all these sort of abilities. And um, this is stuff that everybody notices. Now, part of this effect may be exactly what I was talking about before with the basketball example, that someone like me who like the first time I was asked in school to pick up an instrument and play, I struggled more than other kids, right? And in retrospect, that was a small difference between me and the other kids, but that discouraged me from practicing. So when we see, you know, um, adults or, you know, kids in, in their teens or something, where we see like, oh, he's really a math person and this other person really isn't a math person, this is more of a, of a words person. Uh, some of those differences are not sort of natural differences in uh, Uh, in the mental makeup, some of that is practice. Some of what we're seeing is practice. Nevertheless, uh, I think most psychologists would say uh, there are real differences uh, among these sorts of abilities. Um, Now, exactly how many of them are there? This is a question that psychologists have taken up with lots of enthusiasm over the last hundred years. Uh, It is the case that if you give people a bunch of different Uh, tests, all of which test different abilities, they're all going to be positively correlated. Mm -hmm. That looks like uh, evidence that there is a single mental ability, which most people would call general intelligence. At the same time, if I give you 50 tests and let's say of the 50, 10 of them have to do with verbal stuff and 10 of them have to do with math stuff, all 20 are going to be correlated. But the 10 that have to do with language are going to be more highly correlated with one another than they are with the 10 that have to do with numbers. And those are going to, themselves are going to be more highly correlated. So the solution to this. So you can see that there's sort of like, OK, so there's some evidence for the math stuff all kind of hangs together and the language stuff all hangs together. So math and language are kind of different at the same time. Everything is correlated with everything to some extent, and that seems to favor intelligence as all one thing. So the way most researchers have put this together, and this the the usually the person usually cited here is a guy named John Carroll who wrote a book about this in 1993, is a hierarchical organization to mental ability, where you do have a sort of general intelligence at the pinnacle, and then you've got sort of sub abilities um, uh, below. So both are sort of true. And, you know, whether you want to emphasize uh, the single, the singleness of intelligence or the multiplicity of intelligence is a little bit of what you want the emphasis to be and what your perspective is. Now, do you want to call all abilities intelligence? This is really what Howard Gardner um, is best known for in the education world because he wrote this book in the 80s. Frames of Frames of Mind, I guess, was was the first one. Um, uh, and he he sort of called he didn't call it musical ability, he called it musical intelligence. And you know, instead of talking about physical ability, he talked about kinesthetic intelligence, knowledge of where your body is. Um, and I so and first of all, in terms of Gardner's theory. Um, as I've said, since the 1930s, there have been, you know, theories of human ability that have said human ability is, uh, there are lots of human abilities, not one. Um, so Gardner was certainly not the first to suggest that. Um, also say since the, you know, the book was published, um, most researchers felt that his particular grouping of abilities was not the best fit for the data. And so his, uh, his theory was not um, uh, a serious contender in, in most people's minds for like, oh, this is, he's probably put this together in the right way. Uh, it really, so it did not, that theory did not really catch on in, among psychologists. It really caught on among, among educators and Gardner himself has said, the reason it caught on was because I called them intelligences instead of ability. Uh, and that was very self-conscious on his part. He felt that there's no reason to, you know, humans are, have lots of abilities, and why do we honor language and math in particular? Well, and call those intelligence, which seems to be more uh, elevated than music, which we call ability um, uh, or talent. Uh, and so he felt that, you know, no, all every all of these sort of abilities should should get that uh, more elevated term um i'm not really, as a cognitive psychologist i get what he's doing and i uh, i understand that it's like why would you use different terms for something that is in cognitive terms really you know on the same level is the same thing at the same time i recognize that intelligence had an entrenched meaning and it had all these associations in people's mind And so it was kind of predictable that if it really caught on, there were going to be misunderstandings. So, misunderstandings like um, all of these intelligences should be taught in school, because if you're, um, you know, uh, what people go to school to become more intelligent. And so it's sort of like Gardner has discovered there are these new intelligences and the schools aren't doing anything about it. And so, schools need to catch up. Uh, And Gardner himself has said, like, that's not really an implication of my theory. You know, school, what what the curriculum uh, contains at a school should be based on the values of the families uh, who are sending their children to the school, not based on anything that science could tell you. And I think Gardner is absolutely right about that.
0: Mm-hmm. So another aspect of human psychology you explore in the book is growth mindset. So what mm-hmm. is it, and how would it apply in the context of education?
1: Yeah, so that's another really complicated um, topic, but it's one that is has had some really exciting implications um, for how we do science as much as for education. So very briefly, um, Growth Mindset was developed out of work in the 70s and 80s. There were a number of researchers who were sort of coming out of behaviorism, and behaviorism is all about uh, overt reinforcements and the likely, so what you do next depends very much on whether or not you were reinforced or punished for what similar things that happened recently. Uh, In the 70s and 80s, psychologists were recognizing you really need to think about how people construe what's happened to them, how they think about what's happened to them, not just what absolutely happens to them. Um, So Carol Dweck was interested in how children respond to setbacks, and she hypothesized that when something doesn't go right, um, how you think about that really is very important to whether or not you will persist. So if you fail at a task, you can either construe that as, well, that's evidence, I'm just not very good at this and there's no reason to continue, or you can construe that as, wow, I didn't get that right, this is really challenging, but I think I can probably figure it out if I try some other some other methods, right? So you can, the, the implications for education are obvious, right? So this got tied in, with, uh, in Dweck's work, with theories of intelligence, that the way you would have that second attitude of, oh, I should try again, is if you think of intelligence as something that is open to change. If you think of intelligence as something fixed, then smart people get things right, dumb people get things wrong, I just got something dumb, wrong, Therefore, you know, there's not really anything I can do because, uh, you know, I'm, i apparently I'm not very smart, at least at this type of work. Um, and there's nothing I can do to change that. But if you think of intelligence as something changeable, uh, this is the growth mindset idea. Uh, if you think of something as intelligence as something you can grow, then it's under my control. If I do the right things, I'll get better at this task. Okay, so the early data looked very promising on this. There were uh, several studies that um, showed that growth mindset really did seem to predict persistence uh, among kids when they when they had setbacks. Uh, and then, it, uh, especially after uh, Dweck wrote a popular book and she had a TED talk that was has like 10 million views or something. Um, I think it really got rushed into schools um, before we really knew exactly how to uh, implement it in schools. And so there were lots of failures, what what looked like failures to replicate, um, only a handful of which really tried to replicate it exactly the way Dweck had done it. Um, But fast forward to about 2016 through today, um, and there's been really remarkable series of studies, um, mostly spearheaded by one of Dweck's students, David Yeager, but also other people around the world have participated. Uh, and what Yeager has done is said, you know, what, what this shows us, the fact that um, people have tried to put this into schools and it hasn't been successful shows us that uh, this if this phenomenon, while it may be real, is not easy to implement in schools, it's fragile in some way, and we don't know exactly how. And it also may depend on the specific kids, the specific environment, and so on. Um, So without going into too much detail, what he did was develop a one hour online intervention that was designed to promote growth mindset. And he was very careful and meticulous about how he did this. And most important, he did, uh, he sort of uh, did it the way I I imagine, like advertisers test out uh, ads for products. He would show whoever the target was, if he was trying to make one for 16 year olds, he would show 16 year olds the uh, the the thing that they that eventually they were going to try and use, and they would ask them very specific questions like which bits did you like, which bits seem boring or you know did, just seem dumb to you or whatever, and then they would adjust and do the whole thing over again. So they went through multiple iterations, uh, and then what they found was, and they've done several large scale studies with thousands of kids. Uh, And they've found that these growth mindset interventions that are online actually are effective. Um, In many of the studies, they're only effective for kids who are at schools that don't have very many resources, uh, or they're effective with kids who are already not doing very well in school. But there are a couple of aspects, and and most recently, just to finish the research story, most recently what they've done is they've done this at a national level, and they've tried to get more specific about, as I've just described, about the types of kids and the types of school environments and also the types of teachers where these messages land and then other contexts where these these messages don't land and, and try and figure out why that is. Uh, So these effect sizes are small, but what's so exciting about it is that the cost is incredibly low, right? You're asking for one or two hours of kids' time. Uh, I think frequently it's sort of like two 20-minute sessions separated by a couple of weeks, something like that. Uh, So the investment is very low. The monetary investment, once you've got the program, everything is running online, so you don't have to have specially trained people going into classrooms and so on. Uh, and so, even though you get a pretty small effect, you can kind of do it with everybody. Um, so I think it's uh, I think it's very exciting in a couple of ways. It's exciting just at a basic science level. Uh, it's exciting at an applied level of sort of something that we can do in schools. And then it's also exciting uh, as a way forward of doing science. You know, I mean, what I think Jaeger's great insight was. We can't keep having these little studies of 40 or 50 kids because we'll never really figure out, uh, you know, if if it can work in a general population, uh, and if it uh, or if it can work only for subparts of that population, and why we need to expand greatly expand it.
0: Mm-hmm. So one last question: How do you look at the impact that uh, that technology might have on education?
1: You know, this is one of those questions that, to me, it's it's like the difference between traditional and progressive methods in classrooms. I think the question is just pitched at the wrong level. Uh, I think that technology is such a broad category that until you specify what your goals are and how you're actually going to make use of technology, the question is sort of empty. I mean, this is to me one of the you know if you if you ask sort of what's happened in uh, digital technology and education, like has the effect been positive or negative? The answer is it's been plenty of both. And so you have to start asking more specific questions of, you know, just looking at the past. And so I think the same thing is true of the future. So, uh,
0: the book is again, Why Don't Students Like School? A Cognitive Scientist Answers Questions About How the Mind Works and What It Means for the Classroom. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. So, Dr. Willingham, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: It's been, pleasure's been all mine. Thank you for having me
0: hi guys thank you for watching this interview until the end to keep the channel sustainable i would like to ask you to please visit my patreon page and to consider making a pledge there any amount even one dollar per month would already be a great help otherwise and if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button this show is brought to you by nlights learning and development done differently check their website at nlights.com I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litska, and Blanchett, Berg Larsen, La Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alec, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Linkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolfkin, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron. Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Guintes, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Nieberger-Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegaard, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavanaugh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Thiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross. Jonathan Labrand, Oslin Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J. W. Juan Eira, Tom Hammel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Idan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego London Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Stasebsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, uh, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortés, Úrsula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, and Max Bailby, my producers, our Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia Kian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Liniars, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Ruzeski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivetz. Thank you for all.